You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. My guest on today's episode of Talking Taiwan is New York Times bestselling author Abigail Hingwen. Her debut young adult novel, Love Boat Taipei, hit number one in the first week of its publication and is based on the actual Love Boat program, a language study program that was sponsored by the government of Taiwan. Just in case you don't get the Love Boat reference, this TV show theme song might jog your memory. Love, exciting and new, come aboard, we're expecting you, the Love Boat, soon we'll be making another Abigail herself is a Love Boat alum. Welcome to the podcast, Abigail. Thanks so much for having me. So I am going to apologize in advance. There may be some background noise. We are having solar panels installed on our roof, and we're going green, but it's very, very noisy right now, and my dogs are a little mystified about what's going on, so you may hear them barking as well. Okay, that's all right. We'll, we'll work through that. Thanks, Abigail. Uh, you know, I was really impressed by... Um the tenacity and perseverance of your story when I uh, met you at Books of Wonder at your book launch there a couple weeks back. And, um, you know, I think everyone always, you know, hears like the New York Times bestseller and they see all the success, but they don't realize everything that goes out goes on behind that. So like, first, could you tell me like a little bit about your book and then when it was published and when it hit the New York Times bestseller list? Sure. So Love Boat is a real program. It's been around since the 1960s. It was created by the Taiwanese government um, as a way of bringing over some of the, you know, the young, the bright young Asian Americans, Taiwanese Americans and Chinese Americans from the United States, Canada and Europe. And I went on the program. I was a presidential scholar, so I received the invitation from the Taiwanese government along with a bunch of other scholars and Koch scholars and Westinghouse scholars. And we all showed up in Taiwan thinking we were there to learn language and culture. And we were, but it also turns out to be this like crazy free-for-all party of your life. Um, there's you know a bunch of really awesome kids dropped off together in this foreign country with no supervision. And so um, you know there's a lot of really hard partying. That's kind of what the, the program's known for, sneaking out to go clubbing snake blood sake, beer gardens, hmm. and it's a, it's a crazy romp and such a iconic experience in the Asian American community. And it's one of those things where like, it's, you know, for a long time it was, was a best kept secret, I say, because a lot of people did know about it, but a lot of people didn't. And, um, you know, like even my parents, like they came to one of my launch parties and someone asked my mom, like, did you know that that was all going going down when your daughter went to Taiwan. And she says, no, we got a really nice letter from the Taiwanese government, and it was an invitation to learn language and culture. And um, and she, it wasn't until they read my book that they really understood, you know, <laughs> wow, it was pretty crazy, actually. So so I think the story has just been in me for a long time, and um, I didn't really think I was ready to write it for a number of years. I've been writing for 12 years, and I wrote five novels along the way. Uh, they're all different, very different from each other. Some of them are, you know, young adult contemporary. Some of them are like a middle grade fantasy. And then I've got an adult uh, kind of futuristic artificial intelligence work that's, you know, it's kind of on the back burner, but I've been thinking mm -hmm. about it for a while. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. but this book, I think, I, it was the first one I wrote where I realized like an Asian American girl could be the main character. 
And the reason for that was both internal and external. Internal meaning, you know, that I just didn't know that she was allowed to be one. I didn't have permission internally. And then external and that there were really exogenous factors at play. So, you know, I've, I've shared the story elsewhere, but 15 years ago, a girl um, was asked to change her Chinese-American boy main character to a white boy main character before it could be published. And she did it saying it was like taking a spoon to her heart. Um, and then just two years ago, mm. another Asian-American writer was asked to include a provision in her film contract saying that they had the right to change her Asian-American female character to a white female character for marketing reasons, right? Mm. So there were definitely, there were barriers to entry for sure. Um, and, you know, but I'm just really grateful to be part of this movement now where things are changing. There's more recognition that diverse characters and diverse stories are actually appealing to large, like a wide range of, of people. And so that's kind of, I think, where I come in. Like, so 12 years later, I was uh, finally able to get a book deal. Um, and in this case, I was fortunate to get, um, there was an auction among the the publishing houses. And so we were able to really um, get a, a wonderful, um, really our choice of editors, our choice of houses, and our choice of visions. And so that's how Love Boat came to be. And it came out with HarperCollins on January 7th. Mm-hmm. And then when did it hit the New York Times bestseller list? So the way the New York Times list works is it's all the sales from the Sunday through Saturday, and then you're, you find out the following Wednesday. So mm-hmm. I found out the following Wednesday. I had just gone on tour with uh, two other writers from HarperCollins. One is Adam Silvera, mm-hmm. and the other was Farah Aznishi. And, um, and uh, I was waiting for them in the lobby of the hotel, and I got a call from my editor. And so... I kind of knew something was probably up, and when I answered, she's like, "Congratulations, you know, Love Boat Taipei hit the New York Times bestselling list." So, so in the first week, yes, yes, that it was is incredible. incredible. It was it super was, exciting. Yeah. I mean, I really a lot like so. The first week it includes on um, the pre-orders, and you know, there weren't actually a ton going into the week, so I was I had no idea how it was all going to shake mm. out. Um, but I, you know, I really think people, the Asian American community and people who are supporting diverse books, like really got behind the vision of like, you know, just wanting to support. And so they they came out that first week. And then so I think when they, we hit the New York Times list the second week, that's when I was really in complete shell shock because <laughs> I really was like I was hoping that we could get there with the first week, um, you know, with the pre-orders, because that's I thought, you know, that's our best shot. Uh-huh. And so, but then the second week we hit it, and then we hit it again for a third week. Wow. So I, you know, I'm still kind of in shock. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was actually a week in between the second and third where we didn't hit it, but our sales numbers were higher than other numbers on the list. Mm-hmm. And that has to do with, um, like, so Amazon numbers are weighted less than independent bookstores and Barnes and Noble. Mm-hmm. And so even though you sell more books, you might actually not, mm-hmm. um, you know, you might you might have a discount to your numbers. So it's just fascinating. I've learned so much about the book industry going through this process. Um, but just really grateful to be in this position of being able to share stories from the community out to the world. Right. So oh, I would actually like you to like rewind a little bit because like you said that it took you 12 years. So I'm like thinking like, can we go back to like the beginning to, you know, so people can know like what the journey was like, people don't realize how long it takes for these things to happen. So um, 12 years ago, like, um, what I, I'm wondering, like, when you say 12 years, is that 12 years back to the first book that you tried to get published? Or when you first uh, decided to, 
with for yourself that you're going to try to actually write a book and become an author? Right. It's a great question. So I say that my writing career is as old as my second son. So actually, you might be pushing on 13 now because he's going to be 13 Mm -hmm. later this month. Um, But uh, so I was pregnant with my second child. I was practicing law. I had done everything like according to this. I I was on a path to being a legal going into academia for law. So a law professor. I had, you know, I had uh, done a editorial stint on the Columbia Law Review. Um, I'd written an article that had won a national award. I clerked on the DC circuit with an amazing judge, um, Judge Rogers. And and then I practiced law for a couple of years at a big law firm. It was Sullivan Cromwell, that, which does a lot of work with Goldman Sachs on Wall Street. And so I had just really these amazing experiences and opportunities, but I just could feel like in, deep inside this wasn't sustainable. And I was thinking about I was supposed to write the law article that I would use to pitch for uh, legal academic positions. And I just couldn't bring myself to do it. I felt like coming from me, it would move the needle for nobody. Um, it would just be some esoteric piece of law that I, you know, I couldn't really get excited about. But I had an idea for a novel in my head and my husband was really encouraging. He's like, you know what, you're so excited about it. Why don't you just try it? And that was a really big step for me because until then I actually didn't even know I was a creative person. Um, I read this book that I actually recommend to everybody called Getting Unstuck by uh, Robert Butler. He was a fellow at Harvard Business School, I think at the time that he wrote it. And, you know, it has this 100 jobs inventory in it. And I took this inventory and it's, you know, it's like a, it's not like a literal test, but it, it helps you like think about like different patterns in your life. So the book actually, for the, it kind of pointed me in the direction of creativity. I was like, oh, okay, I'm creative. I didn't know that. Like for so many years, I felt like I was on the straight and narrow path. And so that gave me a little bit more of the courage, I think, to just try this crazy idea. So I started writing this novel, and it really did come very naturally to me. Like, I remember a friend of mine read it, and she's like, you just have a knack for knowing, like, what scenes need to be included, and then, you know, dialogue on the characters. Um, So I had a great time, and I sent it out into the world, and it got rejected by everybody. But there was one agent who printed it out, hand-marked it up, and snail-mailed it back to me. And she said, I really think there's something here. And you know, even though I, I revised it and sent it back, she ultimately turned it down. But it was really encouraging. Um, and you know, ten years later, when I had a choice of agents for Love Boat Taipei, I actually ended up choosing her. So oh, she is now my agent today, right. and uh, it was really, it was really fun. Yeah. You know, what was the about. first book about? So my very first book is called Foxstone, and it's a middle grade fantasy. And it's a portal fantasy where this boy goes into this other world that's that I think is actually super cool. I am hoping to bring it back out at some point, but I, you know, mm-hmm. I think fantasy is its own challenges and like there's many other things you have to learn with building the world and you know all the rules and stuff. But um, hopefully it'll come back soon. <laughs> so, um, so after that, I ended up writing a couple more novels. Along the way, I decided to go back to law, a law firm to finish my training. Uh, because it is actually really hard to sustain yourself um, as a writer, and you know, I had, I had, you know, a good legal training. Um, I had a really good legal background, and so I thought, well, you know, I might as well complete my training in case I need this. And I ended up going in-house to work in venture capital, and that was my biggest. That was my second big decision point. So the first decision point was not becoming a lawyer, or sorry, not becoming a legal professor, and the second one was to leave the law firm and get off that fast track and go in-house. Um, which actually turned out to be a really great decision, even for my my legal career, because I was working closer to the business side. I was um, in I was you know the legal lead for venture capital investments in artificial intelligence for a bunch of years, and 
really loved seeing all the new technologies, the new companies, and it's also a creative space where I think people really value um, taking risks, and you see failure as steps along the way to you know greater things. So that was that all kind of supported the writing, and then the best part I think about my job was that I had a really good team where everybody had each other's backs. There was no emotional stress, and so I was able to use those t- that time to write at nighttime, nine to twelve, and then I, I did an MFA program that was a distance program. I would use all my vacation time to go to Vermont College of Fine Arts twenty days a year, and um, in the interim between the residencies, I would, I would be just exchanging my work with a faculty member one-on-one. Mm-hmm. How did you decide to um, enter an F- MFA program? What was... So I think, yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a great question um, because it's definitely a big investment. I think what happened was I just, I was, you know, I had critique partners. I um, took classes at like Stanford Continuing Education. I took online classes. I went to conferences and I got critiqued by agents and editors. But I, and then I got, I had an agent for a while who was also, you know, critiquing my work and I, I got close twice at a big publishing house and I got editor comments on my work, but I just felt like I'd hit a wall in terms of my, my own growth as a writer and I knew I needed more. Mm-hmm. I had friends who got on this program and they had nothing but great things to say about it and so that's why I did it. But I remember my first day there, a, one of my new classmates and I, we rode the shuttle together for like an hour and a half from the airport to the campus. And she said, you know, we were both really insecure about being there. It would definitely with feeling imposter syndrome. And she said, it's like paying a lot of money to chase Bigfoot. And I thought that was, that was perfect. I mean, I definitely felt that way. I have a piece out um, called Confessions of an Undercover Novelist in Lit Hub, where I talk mm-hmm. about what it was like mm-hmm. to share my writing with my family mm-hmm. and my parents. So for, there was definitely a long period of time where I was like kind of, you know, I had saved up all this money from my law firm life to pay for this, but I still felt really guilty because like, well, is this a good use of money? Is this, you know, is this just a, a crazy dream? Is this unrealistic? Um, so yeah, I, there was definitely a lot of self-doubt uh-huh. along the way. Yeah. But it sounds like that, you know, really benefited you. Like what, what, how did that change your um, writing and your, um, you know, how you felt as a writer and your confidence in your writing or maybe even your, uh, the craft of your writing? Yeah, I grew enormously as a writer. I think I told my my teacher when I first joined, like, I don't want to learn how to polish my writing because I know how to do that already. I did that as an editor on the Law Review, and I did that when I was at a law firm working on these legal documents. I, I wanted to be an artist, and she understood that, and she she taught me how to get to the heart of my scenes and to figure out, like, what is it that's going to break your characters? Like, where, where are those dark places that they need to go? Um, and, you know, she, I think that, that was Amanda Jenkins and she really revolutionized my writing. That was, that was everything I needed. And, um, so I think, you know, my writing as a result was just much deeper. And I think learning how to structure stories along the character's emotional growth was another big learning point for me. I used to structure it very much, you know, according to the plot, but then that I would end up with a really hollow story. But when you structure it according to a character's emotional growth, then the climax is not, it's complicated because you have to line up the external climax and the internal climax, but then that it also just creates so much more power in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember that you had mentioned that you actually wrote several versions of Lovebo Taipei before you settled on the final version. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So 
I since I'd gone to this program, you know, I wasn't sure. I knew I wanted to write about it. I knew there was an interesting experience here to explore, but I couldn't figure out who was supposed to go on this journey, like who was going to be my main character. My husband had also gone on the program, and so we had spent a lot of time talking about, like, okay, let's distill down what is the essence of an experience like this. And really, it came down to identity, like figuring out who, what is your identity as a person between Eastern and Western culture, uh, but also like all its facets, like what is it, you know, what does it mean to pursue your dreams while um, honoring your parents? And for for my main character, Ever Wong, she's she wants to be a dancer, but she's heading to this intensive seven-year medical school program, and so how does she navigate that? And so I, what I did is I ended up auditioning a bunch of characters, and I originally wrote the book from four different points of view. Ever, Rick Wu, who is the Yale-bound child prodigy bane of her existence. Xavier Ye, who is the son of like a, you know, he's part of an international tech empire. Um, and Sophie Ha, who's just there to find a spouse, and she seems boy crazy. And I tried to write this whole book from their mm-hmm. alternating points of view, and then, and then I ended up like... Um, even within each scene, trying to write each of those scenes from everyone's points of view. And so I essentially wrote this whole book like four times. And it just wasn't working. That's I couldn't, incredible. I, <laughs> How long did that take? That took me, it was a three-year project altogether. So I think that took me about two years. Wow. Uh, so and when did you actually start working on the Love Boat Type A book? Uh, summer of 2015. I see. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So... That final version like was draft twenty six and it just wasn't working. I wow. couldn't I couldn't go deep enough with the characters mm. with you know, with four characters mm. and that you know, hundred twenty thousand words. And so I ended up having to scrap the whole thing and just rebuilding it from the ground up. And I ended up choosing Ever to be the main character and I went from I switched from third person past tense into first person present mm-hmm. tense. And it really unlocked something for me. Mm-hmm. I also went to Taiwan to do research and then while I was there I was able to really connect more deeply with her and her connection to Taiwan uh, especially whenever she saw food like a platter <laughs> of fried eggs or a dragon's fruit she would think of her family mm. and like how, how like those things were just mm. usually she didn't want to think about her family at those points in time because mm-hmm. she was angry with them but um, it made me realize you know these really key moments um, and so those are all reflected in the book now wonderful um, and then uh I guess at some point you uh, shopped it around, and what was that process like? So when it was ready, I sent it to agents, and the way that process works is you send a pitch letter plus sample pages, and if the agent's interested in seeing more, then they'll ask for more. So I sent it out, and an agent read it overnight. So at that point, I contacted all the other agents and said, hey, someone just read it overnight. Are you interested, right? And Mm -hmm. so you asked. I had interviewed with the agent. She made an offer. Um, and so I gave everyone, I think, a week, and that, which is standard. And then I ended up inter- interviewing all the different agents who were interested, and I was able to hear all their different visions for it. But um, I, I wanted to be, like, really sure that I had the right representation. So I ended up actually taking a little bit more time because I think at the time a lot of agents were like, we got to get this out right now. It's, like, the right time. Mm-hmm. And I, I just really wanted to make sure I, I chose the right partner and so I ended up, fl- I was flying out to New York to speak at a conference on artificial intelligence and ethics. And so I used that time to meet with various agents in New York. And, um, and that turned out to be really great. So I, when I walked into the New Leaf office, which is the agency I ended up choosing, I really felt at home. 
Mm-hmm. And one thing my agent said that resonated with me, and that's also one of the reasons why I knew she was the one, is I was talking about these side characters in the book called The Gang of Five. Mm-hmm. And they're like a really minor sideshow to the story. Like there are five guys who are kind of insecure about their masculinity, and they do all these things like push-ups, and like, mm-hmm. you know, one of them grows a goatee to look more masculine. And and over time, though, they start to take back the stereotypes around their around themselves. That they, you know, they they're very bitter about these stereotypes, and over time, they take them back on their own terms, and they it has they culminate in their own arc. And I really just love them. Really, I just love them so much. And I remember talking to my agent about it, and you know what they meant to me. And she said they're the Greek chorus. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's exactly right. That's totally what they are. They kind of speak their truths throughout the story, and I imagine them on stage, like. If there was again musical version of this on you know Broadway, I'd imagine them coming out like a, a bad boy band. They sing their <laughs> truth, and then they walk off stage again. So, um, so yeah. So I think that that was a moment of resonance for me that she understood that really weird esoteric thing that I loved. Um, and then you know, and then of course, as I mentioned, she had seen something in my work ten years ago, mm-hmm. and that was important mm-hmm. to me as well. So, is there um, any plans for this to um, be interpreted into any other medium like film or? Um, musical or as you mentioned right so I'm I'm super excited we had a lot of interest from Hollywood and we did just sign um, a film option with the ace entertainment who did to all the boys I've loved before and Congratulations. Uh, thank you I'm so excited to work with them and it's already been so much fun. There was about like 10 years that you've persisted like how did you get through that you said you wrote five novels and like how do you deal with that, like going through the process after getting rejected and then trying to get your next book out? And how did you decide it was going to be Love Her Taipei? Yeah, so that's a great question. I, mean, I really think it's because of my critique partners that I'm still here, that I reached this, this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, my critique partners, they continued to read my work. I was like, why are you still reading my stuff? It's like, I keep getting rejected. And they were so encouraging. They said, your, your stuff is really good. There's just weird reasons why you're not getting through, mm. you know. And I, I definitely understood like that there was a learning curve to writing a novel. And you know, Stephen King wrote four, I think, before he published mm-hmm. Carrie. I think was his mm-hmm. fourth novel. Um, and, and so I, you know, there was that part recognizing like, okay, I still need to grow. Um, and then the other piece was like I'd always had, I'd worked with a, you know very big agents who only shopped to the big houses, big editors, and. And so I recognized, like, okay, there's a bit of a, they're holding me to a high bar. And so there was definitely a lot of, you know, internal debate, like, should I go with smaller houses, smaller agents, smaller editors? Um, If that's what, and people were saying, like, why don't you just self-publish? And I consider that too. But I think I just felt like I wanted to really write something that was, that was just powerful enough to get through those gates. Um, and and I, I think I just wasn't ready. I think if this book hadn't been picked up, maybe I would have I would have gone that path. Um, you mean self publishing? Yeah, yeah. I mm-hmm. think I maybe it may have been at that point where like okay, there's systemic issues. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I really think it's it's just having critique partners, people who believed in me, and just they, when I, I, the hardest moment I think was when I had written those 26 drafts of Love of Taipei and it mm-hmm. got rejected and I was like, I don't know what to do. Yeah, I just didn't know what to do at that point. And my critique partners just, they encouraged me, they gave me advice and I kind of got back on my feet and kept going. 
So you wrote all these versions of Love Boat Taipei and there wasn't an agent that was actually looking and it wasn't working. Is that what you mean? Yeah, it just wasn't yeah. working. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's so important. It sounds like your critique partners are kind of like your support group. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, how do you go about finding these critique partners? So it took me a long time also. I think it's, you know, I, and every critique partner, I think, brings something different to the relationship. Um, I have, I would say I have like five people that I regularly trade work with mm -hmm. and I, you know, they all brainstorm with me in different ways and, and vice versa. So uh, I found my first critique partner at an SCBWI conference. She was a resident at Stanford and she's now a urologist. So I think we kind of connected over both being young moms and mm -hmm. trying to balance significant careers with this love for writing. Mm -hmm. um, so her, her, this is Eileen, I.W. Gregorio, Eileen mm -hmm. Wong. Her first book, her second book is coming out in May um, called This Is My Brain and Love. And it's actually about mental health issues, which mm -hmm. I'm super excited about it. And mm -hmm. we're going to, um, we, we did a panel together on mental health mm -hmm. at the American Library Association. And we're going to be doing another panel in April here at, at oh, Kepler's. Great. Yeah. So, and then, you know, over the years, I've just connected mm -hmm. with others like Stacey Lee. Um, she writes... Asian American historical novels where she writes about the Asian Americans that were present during, you know, the women's suffrage movement or the 1900s um, when there was an earthquake in San Francisco. Um, and she, I think she's writing one now on the Titanic. So um, just, I, I feel I'm so grateful, but it definitely took a long time to just find the right people and, you know, just exchanging work with different people and letting go of some, you know, that that when you guys realize, okay, yeah, we helped each other for a season and then it's time to do something else. Um, what sorts of things do you hope people will learn about Taiwan or from your book after reading it? That's a great question. So even though the book is this crazy romp, it's also, you know, my opportunity, or it was also my opportunity to really explore issues around the immigrant experience and, you know, as I mentioned, identity. Um, I think... You know, the key things is like this, the sense of the diversity within the Asian American community. I have 30 different characters. Um, I would love to see them on the screen and, and to, you know, go on to be discovered into other non-ethnic specific roles. And I want, I want people to understand like, you know, Asian Americans are really diverse. Like it's not like, I think we see a very limited representation right now in the media and entertainment, but my characters are like, they're funny, they're goofy, they're serious, they're sad, they're, you know, some of them are struggling with depression and with um, learning differences, and some of them are brilliant, and some of them are, you know, like, artistic and, and brilliant in their artistic abilities. So it's, I, I think that is huge for me. Um, I guess the other piece is for, you know, it's as I was doing interviews, um, I, I started interviewing people after I wrote the first drafts of the book, um, there were definitely people who were embarrassed about having gone on a love boat and they didn't want their name associated with the program mm. <laughs> and just embarrassed about like all the <laughs> debauchery that it's known for. Sure, sure. And I think what I realized as I was writing the book and, and even, you know, after it came out, I started doing interviews with various people and like that rebellion was so important to us. And I, I talk about this in a, an interview that I did with NBC News. Like I work in venture capital where we're always looking for the disruptors who are willing to overturn established ways of doing things and push back against, you know, entrenchment. And that's what Lovebo did for all these people who went on it. Like we were able to rebel in a safe environment and find out, okay, you get to Barrett's, it's not so bad. You you make your teachers a little upset with you, it's not ideal, but you know, you life goes on. And then of course there's like 
negative consequences of going too far, which happened in some cases. Like I heard a story about 80 guys who broke into a store and they were faced with jail in Taiwan or getting sent home, right? So then, you know, you learn that those are, those are the consequences of going too far. But I think that, that, you know, that was incredibly important to us. And so I think for this book, for people to read it and say like, oh, look, here's a bunch of Asian Americans rebelling. And, you know, it's, I'm hopeful that that actually will, um, you know, I, I hopeful. I guess I hope that that's a skill that we can kind of pass along as well. Like, hey, let's. Uh, it's okay to, you know, have people a little bit disappointed in you, or it's okay to step on some toes. You know, you know, right. in the servants. You know, as long as you're not going too far. Well, well, the interesting that. thing is that uh, the kids that are on this program are not typically the ones that would probably rebel, right? Because you said like presidential exactly. scholars and the kids yeah. that were picked. So <laughs> this gave them the opportunity to, you know, to do that, do some, yeah, to do that, you know. So it's interesting. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. What other topics um, would you like to write about, or and also is there a sequel in in the works for Love Boat Taipei? Yes, so I am working on the second book right now. The first book is a standalone, and the second book continues to follow some of the characters that people really wanted to know what happened. But it's completely a mess. It's in my head. It's jumbled up, and mm -hmm. I need to sort through it. And so mm -hmm. I'm glad I have the example of book one ahead of me, so I know that I will get there eventually. <laughs> yes. But uh, yeah, I'm in the midst of it now. Mm -hmm. um, and beyond uh, Love Boat Taipei, uh, what other topics would you like to explore? Uh, so I, I have a couple books on artificial intelligence. Uh, it's, you know, I work in that space in Silicon Valley. I think it's going to be so important to our future and shaping it. And I work in the artificial intelligence ethics space. I, I'm a, one of the co-chairs for the partnership on AI's mm -hmm. um, expert group on fairness, transparency, and accountability. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think I explore these ideas in my writing, and I'm hoping at some point to, to put up more. I've written some nonfiction pieces for Fortune mm -hmm. and Forbes, and I, but I've got a couple novels in the work that mm -hmm. I'd love to put out one time at some point. Um, what kind of advice do you have for people who are trying to uh, write their first book or to get a book published? Um, I think to keep writing. Keep writing. It's, it's a long haul, and you do it because you love it. If you don't love it, then, you know, it's, I remember hearing Maggie Seafodder say, I give you permission to stop writing because there are some people who feel like they have to. I don't actually know what that means because I've never felt that way. I, for me, I have to write. Like, it's part of who I am. I don't settle until I've written. Um, but, yeah, keep trying. And just keep putting your stuff out there. You have It requires a certain amount of vulnerability. And then be open to feedback because, mm -hmm. like, even if someone gives you a piece of feedback that, like you don't really resonate with if three people give you the same piece of feedback um, even if you don't agree with the way they're they're suggesting you fix the problem there probably is something there to look at and, and you'll probably solve it in your own way so you your book has you know gotten so much um tremendous like um reaction what, what's been the most surprising um reaction or feedback that you've gotten I really did not expect how much the novel would be bridging generations. I think I'd hoped that it would help bridge cultures, you know, between East and West, and that's the journey of my characters. But, you know, the journey of my character is also in coming to terms with her, with their parents, and their parents, you know, being from a different culture and generation. And it's really kind of blown my mind to hear about, like, a 15-year-old girl is talking with her mother, who's an immigrant, from about my book, and someone else is talking to her 90-year-old grandmother about my book. And I think that has been incredibly exciting for me to to see like wow like 
um, you know, it's bringing people together. And for me, it actually has helped with my own relationship with my parents. And that was an unexpected blessing I just never anticipated. So mm-hmm. I, I just, I've gotten a lot closer to them. We've, you know, really kind of partnered up and, and getting the book out into the world. And they've been mm-hmm. amazing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, what were the challenges that you um, dealt with when you were growing up with your parents and then how things have uh, come around uh, since you've had this book published? It's a great question. I think a lot of the challenges are typical to anybody who has parents who are of a different culture. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my parents grew up in Asia. My mom grew up in the Philippines. and My dad grew up in Indonesia. But... Um, my dad came over when he was 13 and he went to high school in the United States. So he's a little bit more Americanized than I think most of my friends' mm-hmm. parents of my generation. So that, I think that helped a little bit. But, you know, they they definitely didn't understand, like, the experiences that I was going through in my American high school or my American mm-hmm. middle school. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I think, you know, a lot of it was my own impatience and being frustrated about not being able to explain things to them. Like, that they didn't, they just didn't understand um, not not being part of that world. Um I think, you know, similar to ever, I definitely felt a lot of pressure, not necessarily from my parents only, but from the whole Chinese American community in Ohio to go into politics. And, you know, I think especially when I got into Harvard, I just felt like there's so much expectation on me to just go forth and, you know, be a, be a voice for the community. And, um, and I remember working in Washington, D.C. and feeling like, wow, this is a place that's run by a lot of young people who have no life experience and they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> and just, it was all, it was so hollow and empty mm-hmm. and it was all about the politics and mm-hmm. nothing about the substance. And mm-hmm. I remember getting on the phone with my dad and I was crying and I said, I can't do it. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm going to let everybody down um, and all this that they want me to be, I'm not going to be any of this. And it was a really hard moment. And I remember, but he said it was okay. And I think wow. that I still remember mm-hmm. that he actually said it was mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very weird for me, honestly, to come to this point now where I suddenly do have a voice for, um, you know, many things. And I just never expected to come in this full circle form. like this mm-hmm. in this way. Yeah, yeah, it's like in some ways like I ended up on my own journey and my own path and somehow I'm here again. That's great. Uh, so I guess people should read your piece about the confessions of the um, the novelist to understand like uh, the path that you went through with your parents because like you kept your writing from them uh, in the beginning right yeah yeah it was a secret for a long time I wanted to thank you so much for sharing your journey and like hopefully it inspires like some of our listeners um, people that are out there who have like creative pursuits and uh, dreams you know to persevere and push through for them Um, how can people learn more about you uh, so best way is my website, abigailhingwen.com. And you can also follow me on social media at abigailhingwen. Mm-hmm. So all of your handles like on Instagram, Facebook are all Ab- abigailhingwen. That's right. Okay, great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you again for taking the time. I've been speaking with New York Times bestselling author Abigail Hingwen about her debut young adult novel, Love Boat Taipei. To learn more about Abigail, visit www.abigailhingwen.com. And if you'd like to learn more about the Love Boat Language Study Program, be sure to listen to our previous episode, episode 66, about Love Boat Taiwan, a documentary film made about the Love Boat Program. If you enjoyed Kaji's vocals and this episode of Talking Taiwan, please take the time to go to Apple Podcasts, rate us, and give us a review. Until next time.
love won't hurt anymore. It's an open smile on a friendly shore. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Liu. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.